This is the Music Buzz Podcast. Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz Podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dane Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Sign, a world-renowned graphic artist with the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Andy Wilson, along with Dane Clark. Hey, Dane. Hi, Andy. How are you doing today? I'm good. Also, Hugh Syme. Hey, Hugh. Hey, Andy. How are you doing? Good. Today, we welcome to the Music Buzz podcast, Richie Fure. Richie is an American music luminary, a Colorado Music Hall of Fame and Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee. He's celebrated for pioneering country rock as a founding member of the legendary and quintessential groups Buffalo Springfield, Poco, and the Souther Hillman Fure Band. Welcome to the Music Buzz podcast, Richie. Andy, thank you, man. And thank you, guys, man. Gosh, all you guys look very cool to be here with you. Well, Richie, as you can see, I'm a Buffalo Springfield nut. <laughs> you are. <laughs> one of the greatest bands of all time, one of my favorites. Every year I, I play Farm Aid, and of course, Neil's always there. And I remember in 2011, I uh, was crushed that you guys didn't play, uh, that Buffalo Springfield didn't play. You guys had gone out and done that tour, and you'd played, you know, maybe 15 shows or something. And I just go, Oh man, I know they're going to be here. I know they're going to be there. And then you weren't, that was a bummer. I'd really, really wanted to see that you guys come back and play. It was really a lot of fun. You know, we tried to do something back in the eighties getting together and it was a train wreck. It was absolutely, it just didn't work. But when uh, Neil got in touch with me to do uh, the project you're talking about, where we did Bridge School, and then we did about, I think, seven or eight concerts after that. Now, we were supposed to do more, and I was put up, I was put on the block to tell everybody we're going to do this 30-day concert thing, you know? And, and I mean, Stephen's sitting right beside me at the time, and he looks, man, we're going to have to have wheelchairs for that, man. <laughs> and, 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 but, you know, we, we did Bonnaroo, and... It was kind of interesting. I mean, after every show that we did, we all got together afterwards and it was like, you know, hey, you know, but da 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 da, this was really a lot of fun, but da da da, see you tomorrow at the next one. But after Bonnaroo, man, I never saw a person after we walked off stage. <laughs> it was like we were gone. So, you know, it, it happens. And uh, I'm going to see Neil here in a couple of weeks with Stephen. We're doing a thing for my documentary that's coming out. And so in a couple of weeks, we're getting together. Fourth, The fourth time is the charm. They usually say third time's a charm, but the fourth time we've tried to put this together is a charm. So we're going to get it. Documentary, are you going to be sort of in discussion with the sort of documentary interview style? Or are you actually going to regroup and do some performances? No, it, it's pretty much like you said. It's just a lot of uh, a lot of different interviews with over the years. You know, David Stone and Danny Klein are putting it together, and and they just felt that this story was worth telling. And so, hey, I said, okay, if you guys want to do it. Well, it's definitely worth telling, man. I, I've got to tell you, 
your voice on the in the country album it blew my mind i can't i mean man you're singing so well i mean maybe better than you sang in 1968 i agree with you <laughs> i agree with you I agree. I, I listened to it this morning, walking my dog, and I was like, oh, I got I to listen to this record before we talk to him today. And I was talking to Dane earlier today, too. It's awesome, man. And I'm not just saying that, but it's, it's really, really. Val Gray is really, uh, I mean, he's instrumental in, in getting that sound. I got to give him a lot of credit. I will say that 90, probably 90% of that was done live. Of course, there were tweaks. You know, I'm not going to sing perfect on every, but the feeling and the emotion he was able to pull off, you know, so 90% of the record was was sung live and, and, and it was it was really cool you know val and i've known each other since early buffalo springfield way back in the 60s and uh he went on obviously to be a, a great producer and producer of the year with betty davis eyes and uh uh, when he came, he did my I Still Have Dreams record in 1979. And when we when he asked me if I wanted to do this other project with him, you know, I said, well, man, I'd love to work with you again. He is a master. I mean, uh, when I heard my voice on this record, man, it was like, oh, my gosh, man, you, you know how to capture it. Wow. No question. I happened to catch I'm presuming from the applause that it was a small audience, but live at the hall, um, you sang, I think, one of your first. I think it was one of the first songs you ever wrote called Sad Memory. Oh, it's a classic, yep. And when you sang that, just live, no tweaks, no production, voice sounded great there, too. I mean, ah, oh, thanks, Hugh. Thank you. And that original record, too. And by the way, as we're winding this thing down later, I've got like 15 essential uh, Richie Fure tracks that I'm, I'm going to get to, but I'll, let's, we'll talk about all kinds of other stuff, but man. Somebody will finally get to hear them, huh? <laughs> well, I mean, we want our listeners, I want to make sure that they, you know, if they haven't heard certain tracks that they need to check these out. I went back through the last couple, last night and this morning, and I really got chills hearing your new record. I really did. And I don't like anything. I'm real hard to please. Me too. I'm really hard to please too, me. Ask these guys. They know I don't like that. He's usually a big grouch about stuff, trust me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really pretty grumpy about music but man i just it made me feel good it just it, well thank yeah. you it was really a lot of fun to make when we picked the songs you know i thought you know people say well why did you do covers you know the, hey listen they were songs that really meant something to me when they were hits and i just felt like hey i wasn't in competition with keith urban or with mark cohen whoever i just wanted to do a song you know and try to make it mine and i think we made most of these songs if not all of them oh no question I couldn't believe, I hope you danced. Now, was that Faith Hill did that or? No, that was Leanne Womack. And the way you do it, I don't know. I like all these songs better the way you've done them personally. They just sound, I don't know. I feel more from it. It, I thought it was fantastic. I think to your point too, I think when you're doing covers, if, you know, back in the old days, a lot of people did covers to try to get a hit, right? Because it was something familiar kind of halfway there already. Anymore though, you know, if you're doing covers and it's coming from the heart and you're a fan, you can tell that it's not like you were doing this to be a number one charting single type thing, but you're doing it from your heart because you love the song and you can tell. Absolutely. And for sure, with this day and age to what the music business is and all, and at my age, man, I'm not looking for a career. <laughs> you know, I'm just, I just had a, I just had the possibility, the opportunity to do the songs and, and it was a, it was sure I can only say it again, man. It was just a lot of fun to make the record. And I think we did, a, I think we did, we, we did honor to the songs and, and to the originals as well. You certainly did. Who is your lineup? 
Well, uh, the uh, the band was Victor and Drizio was on drums, and Glenn Wharf that I'd never worked with. Every record that I've made since nineteen, uh, I guess probably nineteen. It was like twenty. 1979, 1997 or so has been Michael Rhodes, but Glenn Wharf played the bass, and what a guy. He's just terrific. I've met Glenn. Yeah, he's he's a great player. Yeah, uh, Dan Dugmore and Chris Lusinger and uh, Tom Bukovic were the guitar players, and uh, Steve Nathan was the keyboard player. And so that was, that was the band. Uh, Vince Gill came in and sang on Lonesome Town. And I did Lonesome Town because Ricky Nelson had such an influence on. I couldn't wait for the Ozzy and Harriet show to get to the end where Ricky was singing, you know. He, he, was, he was a big influence on me. And Timothy, I, we had originally wanted J.D. Souther to come in and do that. But J.D., his, the schedule's just never, with COVID and everything else that happened, you know, we recorded this thing in 2019. And so, you know, when we when we did it, um, you know, schedules just changed. And Timothy was out at Val's house with my daughter, Jessie, and me doing background vocals on some songs. And I said to Val, just get Timothy to sing you in the part. And Timothy said, let me call Vince. And so he called Vince up and Vince hopped on. And that was really cool. John Barry, who had the big hit with Your Love Amazes Me, he came in and sang a verse of, of Your Love Amazes Me. And then, of course, Timothy. Oh, Jerry Sheff, the bass player? Yeah, but his son sang. His son. Jason Sheff, is that the name? Jason, that's it. Oh, man, thanks so much, Andy. Oh, man. We, we uh, you know, we got as many people as we could. Um, we did it at Blackbird. And of course, we wanted um, Martina to be on the record. And John called me into the office one day. She says, she's going to sing on your record. She didn't sing on anybody's record, but she's going to sing on your record. And, um, you know, it, it, as time went on, her somebody passed away in her family and she couldn't, you know, do it. So my daughter actually sang on one of the quote unquote bonus tracks. Now, why they didn't put the bonus tracks on the CD version, which nobody buys anyway, but uh, they didn't do that. And so probably nobody even heard the George Strait. Uh, I crossed my heart that my daughter, Jessie, uh, she, she sang on that. Yeah. That's great to get your daughter to, to sing with you, man. That's cool. My, mine sings with me sometimes, too. So it's always when you get that that family, there's nothing like that blend of family. Yeah, that was that was, you know, that that was one of the most fun things that we got to do that night. You know, just it was kind of intimate, you know, and it was in a little auditorium where they did a lot of the off things after, you know, after they did the big productions on Friday night. And this, then, you know, they had these. And it was uh, it was a packed crowd and and all, but it was real intimate, and it was something that was just real special to have her there and answer some of the questions and go back and forth and do some of these songs. We could have gone on for a long time. <laughs> Reminded me of the riverboat in Toronto when I would watch people like Bruce Coburn and Murray McLaughlin, all these people that played there. You know, I think even Joni was there at one point, and I know Neil played there. I never saw him. I only saw Neil play at Massey Hall years later. Your music has been the backdrop of my life, you know, especially in the 70s, man. A great time to make music. It was a great time to make music. Well, and, you know, when, when Poco first came out, you know, there was, you had the Sweetheart of the Rodeo record from the Birds, and then you had... Burrito Brothers. The Burrito Brothers, but the, the Dillard and Clark, that first oh, Dillard yeah, and Clark yeah. record, the Gilded Palace of Sin, and then your first record. And I don't think anybody could argue of who the tightest band was. You might say that you like this one better than that one, but you guys were, even Chris Hillman said, when <laughs> they had a great record, but the band was kind of a shambles live, as was Gene Clark's band with Doug Dillard because of whatever reasons. But you guys were smoking. 
You know, you were spot on live. We 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 worked on it, and it's a characteristic of both Jimmy Messina and mine, man. I mean, we wanted to rehearse that when we stepped on stage, you know, we knew what we were doing. It was some of it was complicated, man. We weren't playing just three chord songs. No, you weren't. It was complicated, and then to put the vocals on, but uh, we we did work on it. And you know, you, you're talking about Chris and and the Burrito Brothers. You know, Chris, when, when you know Graham gets a lot of. Um, uh, attention on starting the country rock thing. Well, Chris would tell you, man, he said, we weren't country rock. We were country. We were working in every country bar in Los Angeles. You know, we were a country man, you know, but he gets a lot of, I think, attention from, you know, working with the Stones and working with the birds and working with a lot of other people. But uh, we, I think we, we were the ones that kind of put that country rock thing together, you know, and, uh, and a lot of people, you know, attached to it. I mean, the Eagles took two of my bass players, and uh... I was going to say, boy, they grabbed they grabbed that formula and milked it for all it was worth. <laughs> you know, you can't blame them. But but sat in my living room on twenty three hundred Laurel Canyon Boulevard, man, and listened to us rehearse. I should have talked to him later on, man. Say, can you tell me, man? <laughs> Oh, those guys were terrific. Great songwriters and all men. And uh, Glenn's not with us anymore. But those guys were terrific. They were terrific musicians. And they had the formula down. No question about it. They've done okay. <laughs> so I have to ask about the documentary. You mentioned it a little bit earlier. And I watched the, I watched the trailer. And I know Cameron Crowe uh, voiced the trailer and whatnot is involved. I am a super huge fan of music documentaries. To, to the point where my wife's like, no, I'm never watching another documentary, right? I can tell when it's going to be a good one, even from the trailer. You know what I mean? And I, I got that sense when I watched. I was like, oh, this is going to be really cool. So tell it, tell us about it. You know, we, we, we didn't want it to just be a pat on the back here. Such a good guy, man. Of course I am, but, uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, honest, we wanted honest interviews with people, you know, and, and uh, I, I think we didn't just want it to be the same old run of the mill thing. So I think it's going to, going to come to come to be like that, you know, it's pretty cool. And we were so thankful to have Cameron jump on board. I was his first interview when he was a 16 year old kid, man. I saw that. It, it was so strange how we even hooked up later on, on my social media. I, I saw, I was reading something and I saw Cameron Crow, and I'm thinking, no, this is somebody, you know, just putting the name out there. And and so I went behind the scenes and I, I sent him a note and I said, hey, listen, uh, I don't know if this is you, but if it's you, I'm getting together with Timothy and we're doing a thing at the Saban Theater at such and such a date and love to have you come. He wrote right back and said, it's me. I'll be there. And we hooked up, man. And it was nice. It was awesome. Yeah. That's very cool. What year was that when you did that first interview? Uh, oh, in the first interview, that would have been back when Poco 69. 69. Yeah. That's awesome. He was just a kid. Yeah. He was 16 year old kid, man. There's a great picture of that on your website. Yeah. I saw it last night. <laughs> I have to check that Looking out. Looking young and spry. <laughs> <laughs> Not that you don't look great now. You know, as you get to be this old, you do the best you can. <laughs> so do you have any secrets? I mean, what's your fountain of youth secret for your voice? I mean, there's just a lot of guys that by the time they're in their 70s, they're they're having trouble. Do you have anything you can like tell our listeners that any secrets or? Man, I really can't, Dane, because I haven't taken care of my voice like I could have and should have. And I have never sung right from my diaphragm. I always I tried to take some lessons when I moved to Colorado and it started. It's like, man, that's not me. I can't do that. You know, so I sing from here up and and sometimes I'm one and done and sometimes I can do seven or eight in a row. <laughs> what I found impressive is most people, you know, that are in their 70s. Um, not that I can relate. But... Yes, you can. 
no comment from here. <laughs> Most people in their 70s, they, they lose things like their falsetto and so on. Even that was intact when you did the live at the hall. I mean, you, you, you slipped effortlessly into falsetto. So, yeah, kudos to you, man. Well, thank you. I mean, you know, I got to say, man, the Lord has uh, has blessed me. I'm able to still get out and, and do some things. And and I do have to watch how many I put back to back now when I do get a chance to go out. But I, I, I don't know if if I would have ever learned to to sing right, you know, what it would have been. But boy, they when I tried to take those lessons, it was it was just awful. Oh, my gosh. I said this. This will never. This isn't me. I can't do it. I don't know how to I don't know how to do it. Well, I, I'm glad it didn't work because we if you wouldn't sound like you do now, which is just absolutely fabulous. Here's some of my favorite singers have never taken a lesson in their life, you know, John Lennon, Elton John, you know, Bob Dylan, uh, even Neil, you know, Neil Young, who's got the most, you know, distinctive voice, you know, it's, it's, it's just suits the music. Nobody can sing an Elton John song except Elton or a Neil song. Yeah. But I'll tell you, Richie here could sure sing those Neil Young songs on the first Buffalo Springfield record pretty beautifully. Nowadays, Clancy can't even sing, man. Is there a better song? Come on now. You know, I got a funny story with that when we were putting the, the reunion together that you never got to see. Ah, I know it. You know, went out and, and um, I, I think, you know, Neil and I got together before anybody else did. And uh, I think they were one. He was wanting to see, you know, hey, is this going to work with this guy or not? You know, <laughs> I don't know. And I said, well, hey, you know, man, we in my shows when I do some live, I put this, I put all these songs together. Uh, Flying on the ground is wrong. Do I have to come right out and say it? And nowadays, Clancy can't. I put him in a medley, man. And why don't we try some? No, he just said no. He said every song has to stand on its own. So we we ended up doing a couple of the songs in in the set, but uh, that was kind of a funny story, man. When he just yep, oh, oh every song has to stand on its own. <laughs> Where did you meet Neil? Uh, I met Neil when he came to New York. I was in a group with Stephen called the Go Go Singers, and and we we broke up. And Stephen went off with part of the band. Well, yeah, we we kind of got finished. He broke he broke off and went up to Canada to work his way across Canada uh, Canada to get to California. And he ran into Neil in Toronto. And Neil came down to pedal some songs in New York. And that was the first time I met him. He stayed at our little place there on 171 Thompson Street in New York. And and so that's where I met him first off. So that wasn't too long until the Springfield. So what happened after that? Did he go back up north? And then I know he had a hearse. I know the story. You got to tell it. Well, I'll tell you the story. Yeah. He went back up to Kent, I guess, and played in some, you know, some of the folk clubs. I went up to uh, East Hartford, Connecticut to work in Pratt and Whitney Aircraft, handing out tools in the tool crib because I had to eat, you know, and, and then I'd come back down to New York and do auditions and things like that. But um, uh, Graham Parsons, brought me the bird's first record up to me when I was living with this family up in Connecticut, working at Pratt and Whitney. And he said, you got to hear this, man. I said, okay, I mean, let's, let's listen and put it on. It was like, Oh my gosh, I got to I gotta get back playing some music, man. And so I got a hold of Steven strange thing, man. The only address I had was an address for his dad. So I sent him a letter and El Sal his dad was in El Salvador. I didn't know how this was, we didn't have, we didn't have this kind of stuff. We didn't have cell phones and internet and all that stuff, man. So I sent him the letter and I never, it was like, I never got a response. And I, I waited, waited, waited. Finally, the letter came back. I didn't have enough postage. Oh. Oh, <laughs> so I sent the letter out again 
And, um, and, and it finally came back and I got Steven's address, got in touch with him. He said, come on out to California. I got a band together and ba -da 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 -da. by that time. And I saw where I think you guys had done, uh, had talked to Van Dyke parks, right? Yeah. And he, I think Van, he and Steven were doing some things in LA and, but Steven said, come on out, man. All I need is another singer, man. We got a band and we'll go to town, you know? And I said, well, let me take care of my business here. Cause I'm on my way. I will tell you this. Um, it was quite a step for me because I had come down to New York at one point in time before Stephen had taken off to go to California. He was trying to put together another little band kind of modeled after uh, the Love and Spoonful. And it sounded so bad, man, and handing out tools in the tool crib was better than that. Oh, and so I okay. went back to Connecticut. I told Stephen he doesn't even remember the band. It was so bad. But anyway, <laughs> we got out to California. I mean, I did. And um me and Steven was the band. There was no band. Oh. And so we started. But you know what? It was perfect because we sat in this little tiny room learning all of the songs that he had written that would end up on the first Buffalo Springfield record. We learned how to sing together, how to harmonize together, how to, you know, just to phrase together. I think one of the things that I really loved about Stephen was just the way that he had a phrasing songs. And he said, you know, I, I think he gave some credit to Tim Harden for that, you know, like Tim, Tim was a great, great singer, songwriter and singer. So it was valuable time. It was kind of like, sketchy man what's gonna happen you know and then we had the little incident where we met on uh, neil and bruce had bruce palmer had come down from canada looking for steven and couldn't find him they had been in la for probably three or i don't know maybe three weeks or so and hey we weren't out and about living on town you know we couldn't do anything we were broke poor and just kind of hanging out and um, finally, you know, we were on Sunset Boulevard. We were heading east and, and Bruce and, and, and Neil were heading west to the 405 to head to San Francisco. And, uh, you know, and, and it's like we got stuck right there on Sunset Boulevard. Now, yeah, it's supposed to happen, man. How's that going to work any other way than that? Were you guys in a car and they were in a car and you saw each well, other? He, or what? The way that it happened was that hearse that Dane was talking about. And he was driving that old hearse. And it was, you know, it was an oddball on Sunset Strip, even back in the early 60s. Man. Oh, sure. <laughs> a dude in a hearse. Yeah, I was like, that's, I bet Stephen goes, that's got to be Neil. Well, we saw Ontario plates on the back of it, you know, and, and we got stuck in traffic. There was a traffic jam. Wow. That is one of the greatest stories of all time. <laughs> That's got to be a song. Uh, yeah, I, I guess so. I don't know why nobody. <laughs> I, know, right? that. I mean, obviously, I'm stating the obvious a little bit, but just when you think about an instance like that, where, you know, kind of the stars align, no pun intended, the, and all the music that came as a result of that happenstance moment, you know, not to say it wouldn't have happened otherwise, but. Happening the way it did, it obviously makes for a great oh, man, story. It, it, wow. was, it was crazy. I mean, Graham coming up to Connecticut, uh, Steve, Neil coming down to uh, pedal songs, and Stephen meeting him and in, in meeting Neil in Canada, and then, you know, in L.A., you know, it's like... It boggles the mind, for sure. Wow. <laughs> it, it's a story, man. And, and what a great band you guys were, too. I mean, and uh, underrated bass player, Bruce oh, my Palmer. Gosh. Bruce. Wow, man. Like on... Uh, on rock and roll woman that bass line what's what is that man he was something else oh, yeah, man bruce was talented i can still see steven uh you know bruce had difficulties and got deported a couple times back up because 
the Springfield was a Canadian band. It had Neil, Bruce, and Dewey. They were all they were all Canadians, just Stephen and me. And, and you know, one one of the times that Stephen uh, that uh, Bruce got deported back up to Canada, and we were trying to fill the shoes. And you know, man, I mean, hey, we even tried Jimmy Fielder, who is a great bass player. Man. I mean, no doubt about it. But I can still see Stephen standing in in this parking lot, throwing rocks up at the window of our managers trying to get attention to get this guy back down here, man, so we can play some more music. <laughs> so he ended up having to got deported twice or something, yeah. didn't he? Is that visa-related, or we just don't want to talk about it? <laughs> well, it doesn't. I mean, Bruce had drug problems. Oh, okay. You know, he, he was, he was de- and he got he got deported. Fortunately, he didn't get arrested and thrown in jail. You know, they just deported him, you know, but yeah, he, he struggled. He struggled with that and, and sometimes wasn't as cautious as maybe he could have been. <laughs> Look at today. <laughs> but, um, he was a great musician. You know, it was crazy, man. Uh, maybe we didn't have the, the greatest musicians in the world to put that whole thing together. I mean, Dewey was a simple drummer. He had a good feel, though. But man, he put it was what worked. And, you know, when we tried, there were nine people in and out of the, well, I mean, the five, you know, original and the four that we tried to, you know, when Neil left and when Bruce left, we tried, you know, shifting people in and out of the band, but in, in two years, and that's why we couldn't stay together. We were only together for two years. <laughs> well, all that great music in that short amount of time. You can't quantify good chemistry either. It's just what it is when people Yeah, are, that's exactly right. You, you break apart the Beatles and their disparate capabilities as musicians and so on. I mean, they're really good at what they do, and they were remarkable together. They they did okay. It's like the sum is greater than the whole of the parts. Yeah, it's like absolutely, yeah, man. That is a complete out of out of sequence question. But when you were in New York, did you ever play Folk City? I never did. No, and I I, I don't. At least I don't remember that I did. If I go back then, but uh, uh-oh. No, it was it was crazy. Um, we played um, the Go-Go Singers did this kind of like Americana review at a little place the man was about as narrow as the room i'm in right now um right next door to cafe wa and we played we we played a few a few little things but we the, the thing that we did the most i think was we we did this supper club tour of texas i mean the coco singers were it was crazy we, we made a roulette re- a record for roulette records did an on broadway tonight um thing with um Rudy Valley. We did so the TV show. We made the record and we all in a period of like less than eight or nine months. And then it was done. And how old were you in this period? Uh, 1920. I was 20, 19 and 20 years old. And it's very, let me tell you, man, it's really out of character for me that I would pack up a guitar and a, and a tape recorder and a suitcase and head off to New York. You know, to go to be a folk singer, man. But that's what we did. You can't plan things. Um, Again, this is an aside, and I've I've said it on these these podcasts before, but I feel very privileged to say that I've actually played with a yardbird. I was brought in by Terry Brown, Russia's really best producer, and he just said, I, I want you to play some uh, strings and some acoustic guitar on three tracks. And he didn't tell me who it was. Cleverly, he didn't tell me. I would have been intimidated. But anyway, at the end of the day, he liked it. I got introduced to him at a garden party. Hugh, I'd like you to meet Jim. And I said, hey, Jim, how you doing? Hugh, so I'm Jim McCarty. And I said, you got the same name as the guy from the Yardbirds. And he said, I am. The, <laughs> I am the same guy. This, I've told this story to the to the other guys 
enough times that they're probably sick of hearing it, but I only tell it because it, it speaks to the fact that you just never know when you're going to see a hearse on sunset in a traffic jam. <laughs> you never know, man. Especially that one, man. <laughs> one area we always like to talk about on the podcast is, is artwork uh, you know, with Hugh's background and whatnot. If we could delve into that a little bit uh, as it relates to your career and the bands that you've been a part of, um, we'd like to do that. Well, obviously, I mean, there's so many ways to talk about artwork. I mean, there's the issue of how did it speak to you when you were a kid or when you were when you were buying albums? Did you get drawn to the album art? Were you all about the music and the artwork was quite secondary? I mean, I look at Springfield covers. You got some, you know, you you look at the um, the cover, the painting, the trees, you know, the, the Eve Babbitt. Yeah, that's the but the second that's record. the second one. Yeah, the second one that Eve did. Yeah, that I mean, that's clearly I mean, I mean. Right in, in, in line with all the artwork from like the Moody Blues and Genesis and so on, even though that's not your genre, but it, it spoke to that kind of style. But how involved were you with the artwork? How much did it matter to you as a band? Or were you kind of at the mercy of the record company? You know, And also, how much did album covers matter to you as you were coming up? That's really interesting. I mean, I wasn't that involved, but um, I think, you know, the fact that... Um, um, you know, the first, I can't even remember who did the first Buffalo Springfield record that, you know, looks like film coming down, you know. Um, I, I was definitely more in tune with the music than I was contributing to, oh, let's do a, a, a an album cover that looks like this or looks like that. You know, I pretty much, you know, we would hire, you know, certain people to, to put, uh, put things together. Of course, at one time, you know, I think we wanted Gary Burden, you know, to do some things for us and, and this and that and the other. Um, but it, it wasn't really something that, that I was focused on on as much as I was on the music, you know, and, and I guess I was hoping that whoever was putting this together, you know, was sensitive enough to the music that we were, we were doing. There was some, and there's some that I like and some that I don't like that we were, you know, uh, involved with. I love the last time around where you got, it reminds me of the birds, notorious bird brothers, where they got a horse in David Crosby's place and you guys got Neil's head like facing the other direction because he'd been in and out of the band three or four times. And is that was that whose idea was that? I, you know, because it is I probably it is superimposed. I'm probably pretty sure. I think it is. Yeah, and he's yeah, facing yeah. the opposite direction. Yeah, opposite direction. Yeah, you, you picked up on that. Yeah, oh, yeah. I always wondered. I thought, oh. So often it's kind of a humbling truth that album covers sometimes just don't matter. I mean, The Who Live at Leeds, The Beatles' White Album, which is a pretty cheeky kind of non-art album, you know, there, there are times, yeah, Slippery When Wet by Bon Jovi. These are not important looking album covers, but they were great sounding albums. Even the Beatles, for the most part, didn't have great covers. They had remarkable, memorable covers because of the fact that it wags a dog sometimes. So but you look at, obviously, Pepper and, and Revolver and those, those are really interesting covers, but they have got a lot. Yeah, they are. They're very interesting. Yeah. A lot of covers that just kind of didn't really matter as much as the music, you know. Yeah, well, you know what? I, I think the album covers also, I mean, they attract people. Yeah, they do. And people are attracted to the visual part of that, you know, to find out what's in it. It's such a shame. I'm glad to see vinyl coming back a little bit today, you know. People can grab, you know, um, and I got to say, I'm disappointed with, with, with the insert of In the Country because, I mean, it could have been better to read or whatever. But, I mean, people will grab albums because they, they want, they, number one, they're attracted to what they saw. 
And then they, they open it up and they can read what it's all about, you know, what this record is all about. And, and I mean, there's a lot to the artwork that goes into a record. I, I'm not I'm not trying to pass it off as something that isn't wasn't important to me. But but um, I, I think, you know, lots of times, you know, people people be flipping through, you know, the the, the bins today and they'll say, well, that's an interesting looking and they'll they'll pick up the cover. So that'll attract that could attract somebody to a band or a music genre that they never even listened to before. Sure. We all used to love to open up those records and read about them. That was an important thing, you know? Obviously, there's a lot of famous people in the bands that you were in, super famous. But when I personally, when I think of Buffalo Springfield, I think of the, you know, the artsy cover with like birds on it or the film. Or when I think of Poco, I think of the horse. I think of those things. That horse is iconic. That was a beautiful testament to simplicity and minimalism, but it really, it stuck. Yeah, Phil Hartman. I was out of the band then. He's John's brother. I don't know John Hartman. Yeah, yeah, he's John. And and Phil, of course, passed away. But uh, that was Phil Hartman. He designed that. That was and so simple, but so I mean, I mean, so dynamic at the same time. Great, great album. Great album cover. Sure was. Because an accidental icon that became the icon. You know, of Poco's. You know, I mean, yeah, it was. A, it was a great album cover <laughs> i'll tell you the other when, when i was looking through your stuff last night the southern hillman fure one as well you know back in the 70s when they would have some of those with that blue yeah, yeah with that that look uh i don't know who else did it but I, it feels real familiar when i saw it i was like that's really actually a super cool cover for somehow or another we missed the boat on that we were it was supposed to be one of those photos of an old where we were we were cracked i mean the photo was cracked in a way it was old you know and that part of it never really got translated right really okay i thought it was cool yeah well i think it's cool yeah (laughs) well and and you know what i I love those records too and i'm I'm gonna come back to that uh i thought those were great records uh let's talk about your 15 there dane yeah let's i want to go back to that that the first springfield record that we we were talking about you and steven were woodshedding together uh the vocals uh, going back and listening again yesterday i mean i've been hearing these songs forever but knowing that i'm going to talk to you today (laughs) i'm really going to listen to this stuff again with a try to listen to it with a fresh ear and the vocals are just fantastic like go and say goodbye oh my gosh i mean it's perfectly sang the guys are Perfect. We did that over and over and over again. And I, I, I love that song. That's one of my favorite Steven songs. I think I've recorded that song three or four times. <laughs> it's just fantastic. The performance is great. Uh, it, you, it's almost like you guys get that thing going. And on some of these other songs, too, do I have to come right out and say it? Uh, where, where it's almost like when Lennon McCartney did uh, If I Fell, where you can't tell what's the harmony and what's the melody. It's just it's one of my favorite sounds is that sound that you guys captured on that record. Well, do I have to come right out and say it as much as I love nowadays? Clancy can't even sing. Do I have to come right out and say it should have been the Springfield's first single? It might have changed. It might have changed the history of the of, of our you know careers for, uh, you know, the next little while. But because uh, it, it was an exciting it was accessible. Nowadays, Clancy was very eccentric. I mean, that was an, I mean, that thing going from three, four to four, four. It was a little, it was odd for the time. It's a classic, but you could be right. That could have been, it was probably more of a commercial song. And it had a classic, that B section. I mean, you guys, there was two or three of those on that record and flying on the ground is wrong. That's my favorite one. Wow. What a vocal. 
man. And the, that's got that whole bridge, that expanded bridge, which you guys were so good at doing on those records. Uh, I just want our listeners to go back and check out that first Springfield record. It's unbelievable. The songs that you did on Buffalo Springfield, again, that were the, specifically yours, A Child's Claim to Fame. Wow. Classic. What movie was that in? Wonder Boys? Yeah, Wonder Boys. Wonder Boys. It was in Wonder Boys. And I remember, because I have that soundtrack somewhere, and I go, and I just got a big, I could put a smile on my face. Okay. <laughs> we got a Springfield song on here, man. And, a, and, and it's and not a, a Stephen Seals for what it's yeah, worth. Yeah, it's, it's your song. <laughs> it's great. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very cool song. Great rock and country tune. And then Sad Memory, which, uh, which Hugh was talking about earlier. That's a classic of classics there, man. Your melody is just, that's, just so beautiful. Love that song. And I also love the next tune on the record, the one you wrote for Dewey to sing. Oh, good time, boy. Good time, boy. <laughs> no, man, good time, boy. It's smoking with the Memphis horns. That's the track is smoking. It's you know, Dewey, when we got Dewey to join the band, he, um, you know, he auditioned this and then he said, but if I join the band, man, I want, I want to at least be able to sing a song. I sing like Wilson Pickett. And he kind of <laughs> did. He didn't quite have the chops, but he kind of did the, he kind of did that. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> yeah, he did that thing. Well, that's very cool. That's a cool song. And then the one you wrote with Neil on last time around is really beautiful. How'd that come about? It's so hard to wait. Uh, you know, I had a little piece. I think I had it's almost time to be late. I can't remember the line now. And then Neil went off and took off on another part. We we actually kind of wrote another song that, that somehow or another uh, didn't get credit for, but that's okay. Really? What was that? I got enough. Uh, <laughs> Well, there was a song, the very first song on a record, I think. Oh, On the Way Home? <laughs> really? Which is one of my favorites. That's a beautiful song. I, I love I love singing it. But, yeah, I mean, we, we didn't write a lot together. And, you know, we had bits and pieces and somebody would finish a song or add to a song to make it like a more complete song. And that's what happened to It's So Hard to Wait and and, and, and there was there was something, you know, hey, things were moving so fast and going so fast at that time and people were in and out, man. And so it, it never, you know, it's OK. Life goes on. Yeah, man. Well, what what a great attitude to have about it. And but all those songs are great. But Kind Woman was really the one that kind of I thought showed where maybe you were headed. And that's the first cut did you just meet Rusty Young because he's on that tune, right? Yeah, um, we, we were we were looking for a steel guitar player. We were looking for the, uh, um, you know, at this time, what we were going to do, Jimmy and I next, because we knew the Springfield was over. We're finishing up this record. You can't get a hold of anybody else. And uh, we, we were looking for a steel guitar player and a road manager came to us and said, man, I know the best steel guitar player in the world. He lives back in Denver, Colorado, man. And he is really good. And so sight unseen, unheard anything. We brought Rusty out to LA, man. And I mean, he put that that part on. I mean, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to that tell me that they picked up the steel guitar listening to what Rusty did on 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 Kind Woman. And, you know, his guitar got lost on the way he had to play. I think Stephen had a, a lap steel or something very similar. It was a steel, but he had some instrument, you know, that Rusty ended up playing. And it's very, very, very unique. When I re-recorded uh, Kind Woman on my Heartbeat of Love record, uh, I had Dan Dugmore. He was in, he played, he was playing with me all the time out on every record that I've done since 19, I think 1997 or 98. And uh, 
he was he was nervous having to because having to play because he said, man, Rusty played this, you know, and he 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 will give Rusty, you know, credit for, um, you know, influencing him to get started and, and all. But um, um, Rusty was just one of the greatest innovators on that instrument. He did things on that instrument that other people would never have attempted. I mean, running the thing through a Leslie to make it sound like an organ, turning it over at Carnegie Hall, burning it like Pete. Uh, Towson? Uh, really? <laughs> yeah. He really did that? He burned up a steel. <laughs> no, he, he he turned it over. I won't say he burned it up. He was burning it up as he was playing. Oh, man. okay. <laughs> he kicked it over. He was doing a Jerry Lee with it or something, huh? That's funny. Well, what what a great song, man. And then as uh, you know, as that first Poco record, a, a couple some of the standout tracks for me. Uh, I loved Calico Lady, Make Me a Smile, the two that wrote with Jim Messina, uh, and it's that kind of showed me that. You guys were country, but you were rock. You were kind of prog, too. But people kind of forget. And I'm going to come to that later, the, the last song I want to talk about. But you're actually kind of a prog country rock band. Nobody, It was a little different than what everybody Whoa, else was that's, doing. that's a new that's a new, like genre. a new genre. It is, I, like it. I just coined I'll, I'll it. Write that write down. Prog country You got rock. Hugh right here. Hugh, Hugh can do the record covers. I mean, he did all the Rush stuff, so it's an easy, easy thing. Let's. Let's launch it right now. The first country prog rock band. But it's like there's three, four bars. Time signatures, yeah. There's interesting uh, meter changes occasionally. Time signatures that you were doing. Uh, and then there's, of course, the song Picking Up the Pieces, which you've redone on your new record. There's a little bit of magic in the country. It's always been a classic song. And uh, I love the old one. I love the new one. Cool. So you have heard that bonus track <laughs> i heard it on uh apple music because i have that but uh yeah so i'm gonna i'm gonna keep going here now the second poker record hurry up what were you guys doing man it's like pre-little feet it's like funky it's the funkiest song i think you guys ever did and one of my favorites and i had kind of forgotten about it uh until i listened to it again today and i just started grinning man what a cool tune Oh, love, that you, love that song. Love that song. It had a fun little groove to it, man. We played, I played that live for a, for a couple years in, in one of my bands, you know, putting a little medley together. But yeah, it was a. It rocks. Uh, it's very cool. And keep on believing. It's got that more odd meters in it. It's it's almost like the Grateful Dead, except you guys can really sing good. <laughs> <laughs> it oh. really does have a little bit of dead in it, but you know, you guys sing great. Nice guys. Not, I'm not gonna, you know, say anything. But wow, that's a that's a killer. You song. already did. I already did. <laughs> and you don't have to. And you don't have to. It's a document. And my my favorite song, my favorite Poco song is. And I think it's a masterpiece, and it's like ten minutes long. It crazy eyes, crazy eyes. Yeah. Come on, man! You talk about a prog tune. You know, listeners, if you want to hear a classic, long, uh, kind of undefinable genre of music, listen to Crazy Eyes. It's I I listened to that last night, Dane. I appreciate you bringing that up. I felt the same way, kind of like man, I haven't heard the song in a long time, and I didn't remember it being so different. And it's it's about Graham Parsons, is it not? Well, Graham certainly had some influence. I mean, how can I sing songs about, you know, Crazy Eyes, number one? You know, when you're talking to Graham sometimes, man, it was like you'd look at him and you could almost look through him because you didn't know exactly, you know, where. And then, you know, down among the South Carolina Pines, where he was from, you know, and I mean, down in that area. And, and so, yes, uh, 
uh, th there were some things and, and, you know, Graham and I did have a relationship. So, I mean, I won't deny that there, there's definitely, uh, you know, some, some influential um, parts of that song lyrically that help uh, define our relationship. It was a little folk song. And Jack Richardson, who was producing the album at the time, he said, hey, let me send what we just recorded back to Bob Ezrin and let Bob Ezrin see what he. And so Bob Ezrin is the one that put that whole that whole project together with little little bits and pieces that we played as just a a, a little folk song. Interesting. That's how that was. OK. I always look at the songs like, you know, Strawberry Fields. It was a scrubby little folk song, too. But before people like, you know, George Martin and the band get a hold of it, Ezra, no question. I mean, you're, you're yes, you know. that makes sense. I didn't realize that. Kudos to your song and his production and the way all that came together. That is a fantastic piece of music. It is an exciting piece. I, I'll agree with you. Thank you. And I was going to ask you, didn't wasn't Graham Parsons, I might have this wrong, but was he trying to maybe be in Poco in the very early days before the burritos? We were both putting bands together at the same time, and it was kind of like, who are we going to swap out, you know, to to put in this band or that band or, you know, how are we going to make one band out of these two? And you know what? I mean, as, as fate would have it, you know, it wasn't going to work. You know, as much as I love working with Chris, you know, and having him, uh, you know, I mean, I love Chris and he would have been probably one of the guys that I would have, you know, loved to have had. And obviously we worked together later on in years and he's, in fact, as I got a, a podcast coming out with him in a couple of days, I just got a, a, a note from, but, um, you know, I mean, we, we, the Brito brothers were what the Brito's brothers were and Poco was what we were. And there was just not much. There wasn't much there wasn't much wiggle room in there to move somebody around, you know. And and obviously you guys were you, you guys were hitting the bricks with your because you your tight your tracks were tight always. Um so let me go on and just say there's a few more songs that so the so the uh the Souther Hillman Fury band Fallen in Love. Come on, man, that's a great stomping rocker. I uh, I hadn't heard that one for a while till I'd listened to it again. That was, was a great. that was a yeah, it was a rock and roll song, and I wanted Richie Podler to record Poco early on, and CBS turned us down, and that's when we got Jack Richardson, who obviously was a great producer in and of himself, you know, doing a guest with people like that, but I always loved Richie's music, and I liked what he did. We went in, and we cut three demos with him, and they, they made Poco, he made Poco sound as alive, because that's what we were trying to capture, what we were capturing in a live audience feel he was able to do it and so we cut a few of those songs but cbs wasn't hearing it so i was really glad when um um uh, you know when southern human fairy got together that we were able to get richie to to produce the record for us because he is a he's a talented talented him and bill cooper man were very talented guys <laughs> sure that was a, that was a great record and i know there's maybe not a whole lot of love about the second record that people don't like it as well but i love trouble in paradise i thought it was great i thought it had two great songs of yours uh for someone i love it's a beautiful ballad love it <laughs> well great david song. david cassidy took part of that song and put a, and he made a song of his own using part of that song i can't believe it man did he david and i were friends we were friends yeah he he did a song called um love in bloom and just check it out i mean he took the whole he took there's my part right there david and i were friends and but i didn't even know that he did that at the time you know but uh, 
Yeah, that was, you know, I'd look at that as a prophecy song because my wife and I were actually, we had been married for seven years and we were separated for seven months. And that was the whole thing that, about me leaving that band was that I had to take a focus on, is it my marriage I want or is it this musical career I want? And I chose my, but I wrote maybe just a little more time when the but winter snows melt mid-spring and who knows? Well, that's when we got back together in the springtime. And I, had no, I wrote this song years before we ever, I mean, not years, but probably a year before we ever even separated. And so that, when that song came around, man, I was like, and we got back together. I look at it now and I think, my gosh, man, I was talking to myself about a story that was like, Jiminy. Wow. <laughs> That's Dude, something we got 55 else. Five years now, man. Well, God bless you guys. That's awesome. <laughs> no kidding. And the, one more song on the line. That should have been a single. Why didn't you guys put that out as a single? You know, I think because the band was pretty much over at the time, and I don't, I don't, I really don't know. I, I don't. It was. A, it's a lost. It's a lost one. So, listeners, on the line for someone I love, both off the Trouble in Paradise record. Uh, Got to check tell you, out. Mike, one of the things about them, and we had Tommy Dow do that record. And I don't even know. Oh, he did that I, one. Okay. I don't even re, I don't even remember. I mean, because Nancy and I were separated. She was down here probably five miles from Caribou Ranch where we recorded it. And I was out of the house. I mean, it was like it was a nightmare time for me, man. I wasn't I I was not connected. But here I am, man, making a record with one of the greatest musical guys in the world, you know, and and I don't even he must have thought, man, where did you guys pick this guy up at? <laughs> you know, I, I was like I was delusional at the time. I was just delusional. So, How did you find yourself with two Canadian producers of, of such note like Richardson and Ezrin? How did that happen? Uh, well, Jack had done a lot of stuff with Bob. Okay. I mean, right. he did some other work with him. And when we were looking for producers, uh, you know, for um, for Poco at that time, um, you know, we were looking, we'd already, had we made a record with Steve Cropper at that time? I don't know if we, uh, yeah, we had. Yeah, because Bob, uh, um, anyway, it was through Jack. That's how we met, you know, that's how we met Bob. <clears throat> I, I wanted to ask about the 50th anniversary or the 50th, I, I mean, return to the Troubadour release, not anniversary, but what was that like for you? I mean, we talk about a, obviously a full circle moment, but what was that like that night? And obviously the, the recording's fantastic. You know, what was really cool about that, Annie, was the, the, the people were so into it. You know, the Troubadour isn't a very big place. When I walked into it, it's like, whoa, but it was like wall to wall. They took all the tables out of the place. And, and man, when we came out and we started that first, you know, I guess you made it. it. Well, actually, we played a set before that. But when we started that, the people were so into it. And it just, you know, it was just a satisfying moment. You know, the people, you know, were so in tune to the music. Because let's face it, I haven't had... I haven't had hit records, you know, I mean, I've had a hit with some of the bands that I've been in, but, but I still love to go out and play and people knew my music and knew the songs that, that I'd been associated with. And, and, and it was, I, I didn't think we could pull it off until I looked at all the songs that were on the album and all of them, but about four songs had I already included in my sets somewhere along the line, you know, so I knew we could make it happen. 
And um, it was it was a special evening for sure, man. I mean, you just look at some of the people in their faces, and they're 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 having as much fun as we are, man. No doubt. You you can hear that on the recording too, by the way. I, I you know, and hearing you say that, you can definitely hear that. Yeah, that that's awesome. And and you know, when the audience is into it, that just makes you get into it all the more. You know, it's like no if question. they're just. If, if sometimes you're playing to these reserve audiences that are 70 years old now today, you know, you just wonder if they're into it or not. Man. And, and I'm still one of these guys, man, and I'm out there ready to jam you, man. Let's go. Yeah, that's what it's all about. <laughs> well, I've got a question. So I, I read somewhere where I don't know if you're semi-retired or retired. I know you're going to play some shows, but uh, sure, man, you got to make another record, man. This last one was so good. Your voice is so good. You got to make, you got to start working on another record. We want to be able, we want to get you back on here when it comes out. Awesome. Talk well, I'm working it. on some songs, but you know what? You got it. You got to put some, some stuff out there. I've got two records out there. I really want people to listen to one called Heart, heartbeat of love and another one called hand in hand. And these are, these are records that I made, or I'll say records. These are projects that I've done, you know, more recently and um, man, I think it's some of the best music that I've done, you know, and check out the the packaging for Heartbeat of Love. And if you haven't seen it, I tried to make this. I mean, Hugh would probably appreciate this. There's a guy back here, uh, Gary. Oh, gosh, I can't remember his last name. now. I can't believe it. But anyway, it is a project that you can open it up and it's like you're opening up an album. And it is so cool. Heartbeat of Love. And then the last one that I did, um, you know, around the time that I did the, the 50th anniversary thing at the Troubadour was uh, an album called Hand in Hand. All of these records were cut in Nashville with, I mean, just the top players in the world, man. And he's, it's just a lot of fun to make and got a couple devotional records that I made in my father's house and I am sure. So I, you know, I try to keep music happening because it makes, you know, I can't just go back and just play all these old songs all the time. I play in my sets, you know. I'm just looking at, I'm looking at my new set list, you know, for coming out, coming out this, uh, and, and it's like I got, you know, all the songs that are new songs, and then I got a lot of, I mean, old songs, and then I got the second half, man, a bunch of new songs, so. Um, we hope you come to Indiana, because I want to see you. I would love to. I've seen Steven, I've seen Neil, uh, and I haven't seen you, man. I've got to see Well, you. I keep a low profile. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> if you get in this area, man, we're coming. I'm just telling you. All right, man. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. You guys are awesome. I had a wonderful, wonderful time. Thanks for inviting me, man, and I hope to see you someday down the road. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.